Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, thanks for joining me at Compass. I'm Chris Shandro, the pastor here, and uh, I'm glad you're with me. I want to start by asking you a question. When does Christmas start? Because for some people, Christmas starts right after Halloween. I mean, the ghost inflatables go down and the Santa inflatables immediately take their place. I mean, Christmas commercials are already playing, but that might be a little early for you. I mean, I think most people would say that Christmas begins the day after Thanksgiving, because that's when a lot of people put up the Christmas tree and decorate it with the lights. But how about when Christmas ends? I mean, most people would say that it's over on December 26th. But what about families that can't get together until after that day? I mean, my family's having a Christmas gathering on January 12th this year because that's the only time we can get together. Is that still Christmas? I mean, does that still count? Whenever you, whatever you think Christmas starts or whenever you think Christmas ends, uh, we can all agree that it, it's a season. It is a period of time. It's a season that starts with the promise of Christmas and everything that entails, and it ends when all of those things have happened. And in the middle of the promise of Christmas and the arrival of Christmas is the tension of that hoping and waiting. It's that knowing that the food and family gatherings are going to happen and the hoping that we will get the presents we want, but still having to wait for all of it. Hoping and waiting, it doesn't only describe how we celebrate the season of Christmas, but it lies at the heart of the whole Christmas story. Now, as a church, for the very first time, we are celebrating Advent this year, which literally means arrival. It's the arrival of Jesus when he was born 2,000 years ago in a stable in Bethlehem. The arrival of the Messiah, the King that the Jews, uh, who would lead his people into a whole new world, were looking for. They watched for him. They watched and waited for him. They hoped for him. Hope is at the heart of the Christmas story. But if we're going to understand the hope of Christmas, I think we need to understand what the people who were waiting for Jesus were actually really hoping for. Now, if you did a poll and you asked people, why was Jesus born? They would probably say something like, uh, he came to save us from our sins so that someday when we die, we can all go to heaven. And while that's something that we can put our hope in, I think it's a small and incomplete vision of the hope that Christmas actually brings. I think that to understand the hope of Christmas that we have, which is years after Jesus was born, we also need to understand the hope of the people who lived before Jesus was born. And to do that, we need to take a look at the big picture story of the people of Israel and the promises that God made to them. Because thousands of years before Jesus, God picked out Abraham and he made him a promise. Let me share this with you. Genesis 17, 6. God said, I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. God makes this promise to Abraham that his people, his children, the people of Israel will multiply both in numbers and in power, and that they're going to be given this land that will be theirs forever. The Israels got that land, and they built a kingdom that lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Israelites, they put their hope of a future in this promise of land. 
That was a promise they put their hope in. God made another promise to David, who is a man who would become the greatest king of Israel. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 11. The Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This was another promise that God made that the Israelites, they put their hope in. That no matter what happened, that they would always be a nation that existed, that was ruled by a king. But then things started to unravel. David's descendants, they were only kings over all of Israel until his grandson took power. And then the kingdom was divided into two, into Israel and Judah. And while they remained kings of Judah, David's descendants, they never ruled over Israel from that point on. And then hundreds of years after that, because of their idolatry and a series of wars and failed alliances that would probably fit in the Game of Thrones episode, both Israel and Judah, they were conquered in waves by the nation of Babylon. I mean, look at this first wave uh, that resulted in 2 Kings 24, 14. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar took all of Jerusalem captive, including all the commanders and the best of the soldiers, craftsmen, and artisans, 10,000 in all. Only the poorest people were left in the land. Israel and Judah, they were conquered by Babylon and they became occupied lands. And thousands of their best and brightest were taken to Babylon to become servants. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel, he was one of these servants. Servants, his story took place here in this time. And after the occupied nation of Judah, they continued to push back against Babylon. The king of Babylon had enough. And look what he did in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17. It says, The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, that were used in the temple of God and the treasure from both, both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. With this, the nation of Israel fell. It was destroyed. The walls were torn down. The temple was destroyed. And the land that God gave them, it was no longer theirs. And there would never be any more true kings of Israel. And then the Jewish people were taken into exile in a for into a foreign country that would attempt to erase their cultural identity and their religion. So what happened to God's promises? He promised a land that would be in their possession forever. He promised a king whose throne would be secure forever and whose, whose house and kingdom would continue for all time. Because of this perceived breaking of promises, a lot of people lost all hope. But a remnant of people, they held on to it. And they called out to God, yearning for a return to their homes and a restoration of their kingdom. And then there were prophets who began speaking on God's behalf about just that. 
saying there's a time when things were going to come and get better. There was a prophet named Isaiah who actually warned the people that they were going to be taken into exile before it happened. And he also gave them a message of hope from God about their future. I mean, look at what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 2. In the midst of all this, he said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now this prophecy, it may not have meant much to the people when they were under siege by Babylon, when their sons and their daughters were being taken into captivity, and when everything that they held dear was being destroyed. But when they were in exile in Babylon, they begin to hold on to these promises of restoration. They put their hope in the future that these promises described. I mean, look at what Isaiah, Isaiah continued to say in Isaiah chapter 9. So the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing a plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war, they will all be burned. They'll be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will, rule, he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. The people of Israel were in the deepest darkness. But while in exile, a new hope started to arise. That God would be sending a new king in David's line, a savior who would renew everything that had been broken and restore everything that they'd lost. The Hebrew word for the savior was Messiah. And while they were in exile, the people of Israel, they put their hope in this promise from God that a Messiah, a savior would come and make them whole. For 400 years, they waited they waited while Babylon was captured by the Persians, who were captured by the Assyrians. Alexander the Great eventually conquered this land before it was finally taken by Rome. And even though the people were allowed to return to their land and even rebuild the temple, it still wasn't their land, and they still had no king. But they held on to the hope of a coming Messiah who would set their hundreds of years of subjugation right. They held on to the hope of what Isaiah said. They put their hope in the promise that the people who walked in darkness would see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. All of that history, all that story of Israel, it brings us to the season that we are celebrating right now. Whether you started celebrating it on Halloween or you're waiting to start it on Christmas Eve, and that is the birth of Jesus. The people of Israel, they've been living in the real-time tension of, of that season for hundreds of years. They lived under the bondage of one oppressor after another, hoping for the day that their Messiah would come 
not knowing whether it would be another year or another hundred. But they lived in the tension between the promise of hope and the arrival of hope. And then Jesus was born. For people who lived in a land of deep darkness, a light began to shine. I mean, look at how John, who is a disciple of Jesus, puts it. In John 1.1, he says, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light that shines in the darkness, the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of humankind, the light of the world, he had arrived. And every year we celebrate Christmas to remember his birth. But I do wonder something. If that's the case, why isn't the world better? If Jesus came to save the world, why doesn't it look saved? And the answer to this question is one of the fundamental messages of Advent. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel lived in the tension between the promise of the Messiah and his arrival. And it was hope that sustained them. Our hope is different today, but the tension we live in isn't. We live in the hope of what was promised by Jesus' birth and the full arrival of his perfect kingdom. We live in the tension of what was promised by his first arrival and what will be perfected in his second arrival. Jesus' birth is just the beginning of what God is doing. It's the promise we put our hope in. I mean, look at how the Apostle Paul describes this hope in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope, the hope that was initiated by Christmas, is the blessed hope of Jesus' return. When he completes the project of setting the world right that began with his birth, death, death, and resurrection and ends when he comes again. I mean, look at how Paul says it in Romans 8.22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the people of Israel hoped and waited for the coming of the Messiah to set their world right. And we too live in the tension of that hope. But we wait for a Messiah who we know one who's already begun his work of restoration in us and will complete it when he returns. And Christmas is the promise of the fully restored creation and the fully restored humanity that will return with him. That is the hope of Christmas. Around 17 years ago, I wanted to watch some movie with my wife that I knew she was going to hate. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was probably like Lord of the Rings. 
And the only way that I could get Terry to watch this movie was if I made her a promise. I said, if you watch The Lord of the Rings with me, I will watch The Notebook with you. And she agreed. But I didn't want to watch The Notebook, like at all. And so whenever the movie came up, I would be like, you know, I don't really feel like watching that tonight. Can we just watch it another time? And then eventually I started to wonder how long I could put off this movie. Kind of became a joke. I mean, she would say, you promised you'd watch this with me. And I'd be like, yeah, but I never said when. I mean, if we watch it when I'm 80, I'm still keeping my promise. Okay, you don't have to tell me. I know that was a total jerk move. But I can report that just a few months ago, I made popcorn, we sat in our living room, and we watched The Notebook. Terry just had to wait 17 years. But I made a promise to my wife, and then I kept it. It just took a little bit of time. And Terry, she lived in the tension between my promise and when it was fulfilled. She lived in the hope that the time would come when we would watch The Notebook. In the same way, we live in the tension of the birth of Jesus and the ultimate renewal that will come when he returns between his first advent and his second. And while we don't know when he's going to wrap up heaven and earth, restoring all creation together, Christmas is the promise that we can put our hope in that that day will come. When every tear will be wiped away, when sorrow and death will be wiped out, when the promise of Jesus' birth is ultimately fulfilled. The hope of Christmas is for the world, but it's also for you. The light of the world is for everyone living in a land of deep darkness. Jesus' birth is an invitation for you to embrace a new hope that there is a God who loves you and cares about you enough to bring that same light into your life. So may we be people of hope this Christmas, both embracing it and sharing it with the world that Jesus came to save. And I pray that that the thrill of hope as we remember Jesus' birth would be the same hope that sustains us until he returns. Thank you for celebrating Advent with me, and I will see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. Compass.